Thank you for downloading the Root Simple podcast. This week, we go to the Santa Rosa Fairgrounds in Northern California to the National Heirloom Exposition. The three-day expo is run by the folks behind Baker Creek Seeds and features speakers, a large hall of heirloom fruits and vegetables, vendors, livestock, a biodynamic pavilion, and live music. I've attended each year for five years in a row. This year, I took my portable recording equipment, and on this episode of the podcast, you'll hear interviews with root vegetable farmer and guru Grant Bryans, Sir Cobbalot, Sustainable Santa, yes, you heard that right, and we'll conclude with a discussion about the California Grange. First, we talk with farmer Grant Bryans. Grant farms 310 acres in the Hollister area and runs Gourmet Seed International. We're joined on this interview by Los Angeles area master gardener, Dana Morgan. What's your name? My name is Grant Bryans, and I am a farmer and seed person out of Hollister, California. And I hear you're an expert in root vegetables? Uh, Well, I'm not sure if I'm the expert, but I certainly have lots of experience, and I've given many talks on them, and we grow uh, over 50 kinds of root vegetables on our farm. So are there, what, are, what are the things that you need to do differently for root vegetables than other vegetables? One of the things which is fascinating about a lot of root vegetables is it's actually possible to have too much fertility and or over-fertilize. And uh, that can lead to more issues with insects and diseases. Um, it also can lead to problems handling frosts in the wintertime. But the biggest thing I think to talk about and take away on root vegetables is they are the original way that uh, Europe fed itself. That it provided not just the carbohydrates but also the protein in the winter times. Because of course you can store so many root vegetables under moderately difficult conditions. if you are of ancestry from Scandinavia or from Central Europe or from uh, the UK and Ireland or France or even Northern Italy, that root vegetables historically were how you survived going through the winter and also in the springtime before you had much that was ready to go of new crops. Now, are we talking turnips here? What are we talking about? Oh, gosh, you're talking not just turnips. Um, In the brassica family, obviously, you've got turnips, rutabagas, kohlrabi, winter radishes. There's an entire range of winter radishes. You've got beets. You've got parsnips. You've got carrots. Uh, Carrots have been a crop both for livestock and for humans in northern Europe since the Middle Ages. Um, Obviously, the genetics there originally came from Central Asia. You have things like uh, salsify and scorsonera and other unusual root crops that are more specialized and you found in a much smaller area. But all of these things are available to us today to not just grow most places in the United States, but uh, to enjoy almost around the world. Do you have some favorites of those that are maybe less uh, known in uh, in the supermarket, let's say? Well, um, in the turnips, uh, my absolute favorite turnip is a variety called Vertus Marteau, which is an heirloom variety from France. It goes back to at least the 1700s. Uh, Mr. Vilmoron, who founded the Vilmoron Seed Company, uh, he had that on his list from just about the beginning of his activities. Um, It is a little bit of an odd-shaped turnip. It doesn't look like a standard modern one. Uh, It's a little fatter on the bottom, but it's sort of kind of almost cylindrical. And uh, it has a really just sweet and kind of fine taste to it for a turnip. Um, Also, I love black and purple carrots. Uh, They oftentimes have not just those anthocyanins, but also they have wonderful flavors, most of the varieties. Uh, There are certainly exceptions, but many of those. Um, Also, very few people these days eat parsnips. But the reality is that parsnips are, although difficult to grow, they are an amazingly nutritious plant. They have a sweetness to them that just gives this intriguing balance 
Uh, they're, they're a lot of fun, and you can do crazy things with them. I was at a uh, Michelin-rated restaurant in San Francisco, and they were using our baby parsnips, and they were doing parsnip shavings on, uh, ver- on a couple of dishes, and uh, where you shave them and you then flash roast, basically. And it's just amazing, the flavor that that gives it. It gives you that intriguing addition you can't get from anything else at all. Also, I happen to be a huge fan of beets. I've loved beets since I was a kid. But I guess maybe out of all the things, the one that is the most underappreciated root vegetable isn't a root vegetable, and that's kohlrabi. Kohlrabi stores the, uh, the nutrients and the, the food, if you will, right above the ground. It looks funky. Uh, it's one of those things that when I was a kid and you looked at the seed packets, it was like, what in the world is that thing? And uh, then maybe about 10 years ago, um, I got inspired and I started growing it. Discovered I absolutely loved kohlrabi. It tastes like broccoli with honey in it. What better thing could you ask for? I love broccoli. I love honey. There you go. So you mentioned uh, soil preparation, not having too fertile a soil. Do you soil test? Is there some kind of like targets you're shooting for? What, how do you manage your soil? Well, I will be the first person to say that back when I was younger, and I was, I was farming in my 20s, and I had uh, a soil test program every single week. And I quickly came to the realization that this wasn't actually doing what it was that I needed. What I realized was trusting my instincts was the best thing to do. And so I can give advice to people uh, on particular soils, tell them what they likely would want to do. But the reality is put your hands in your soil. Put your eyesight, smell it. If it smells sour, there's something wrong. Amend it. If it, if it smells like there's just no smell, well, there's something wrong. It's not alive. My biggest thing is microbes, microbes, microbes. We use biodynamic compost on my farm for our main added nutrition for the crops. Um, I am a huge fan of biodynamic compost. It just does a great job out there. And I'm an organic farmer. I'm not a biodynamic person. But, uh, but that's something they've got it right. Uh, the Lubke method out of Austria, it's the way to go on that. What about climate? Is there certain climates that are better for root vegetables than others? Um, most places, there is at least a time of the year that you can grow some root vegetables. Uh, there are places you can grow them all year round. We're in Central California. We grow root vegetables every single week of the year. Everything from the spring radishes to all the things I just talked about. And that doesn't even cover all the varieties. We have so many others. Uh, there are certain parts of the year where, depending on where you are, you cannot grow turnips, for instance, because they bolt. Uh, there are certain parts of the year where you can only grow the most bolt-resistant carrots in most places. Um, but in general, <clears throat> the more northerly a location, the more people are a little bit more in tune with root vegetables. Uh, the conditions are more likely to make it easier to store them in the wintertime. Uh, there are some root vegetables, many in fact, that you can store in the soil and then pick them either when things defrost some during the winter or if it's with straw or other things, you can store them in a root cellar. Sometimes you can cover with a cover crop over the top of, uh, of them, just laying it down there, not planting a cover crop. That's going to take out your root vegetables. There are many different things you can do. Um, I would say the only place that you really would truly have a major problem doing it is probably a place like Hawaii. Dana, do you have any questions? Wow. Um, recently, people have been telling me um, a fungally-based uh, soil is better than one that's bacterial, bacterially based with a, you know, you were talking about soil, and I'm interested in your feeling about that. Um, what I would say is that I have not tried to get myself too, diffi- too deeply into the specific microbes because we have so little understanding of all of the microbes that are out there in the world and exactly what they do and how they best interact. So what I would say is that when you hear a comment like fungally versus bacterially based, 
they're good fungi, they're bad fungi. They're good bacteria, they're bad bacteria. Uh, the key is to inoculate your soil with mixtures of fungi and bacteria that will have a chance to work together in systems with your plants, with your earthworms, with your larger organisms that are in the soil. And uh, that's what I would say. It's, uh, it's not about, well, we only want this one class. The more there are, the better. Any other questions, Dana? No, but thank you so much. It's been very informative. Wow. Yeah, thank you. What was your full name again? My name is Grant Bryans, and I have Heirloom Organic Gardens, which is a farm near Hollister, California. Also, Gourmet Seed International, which is on the internet, and we sell all sorts of mostly open-pollinated, mostly heirloom varieties, both from Europe and the United States and other places. We don't uh, avoid hybrids, but hybrids are something I believe in, and this is not a, a, an, a commercial exactly, but... Uh, hybrids are something that there is a place for them, but I'm skeptical about that being our route to take. Because how do you preserve the genetics when you have to breed the inbreds, and that has to be somebody responsible for it, and you can't do it yourself? Um, I'm a big fan. I tell people how they can save seed, even from our seed. Yes, it reduces our sales in the short term, but it's for the common good. It really is. Well, thank you so much for being on the Root Simple Podcast. You're welcome. Next, we talk to Cobb and Adobe enthusiast, Sir Cobbalot, who, each year at the Expo, brings his mobile Cobb oven. Hello, I'm, I'm Sir Cobbalot, and I'm with Living Earth Structures, and I'm here at the Heirloom Expo uh, demonstrating the benefits of working with Cobb, uh, natural building, adobe construction. So I have a, an adobe oven here that I've built. It's on a trailer, and I've been cooking squash in it. There's big piles of squash all around us, and so I've been letting people select different squash, and I throw it in the oven, and an hour later it's well-cooked. And, and so we've been doing demos today. I have my, my little cob pit, and I've been letting kids stomp in the mud, and we made a little mouse house. And, uh, and so I'm showing people the, the possibilities of what they can do using local earth right from their own backyard. They can build little houses, little ovens, and benches. I have a little mobile mud hut. I call it a caboose. That's here, and people have been going inside and taking naps. I have a, uh, something called a minga, which is a tradition I learned down in South America. In the past 10 years, there's been over 300 houses all built out of adobe and cob and straw bale and straw clay, all because of the minga, which is a work party. And, uh, and so I, I really like doing those. And so I, was doing, I did a project down in, um, in, Ho in Hollywood, actually, at the Michelle Terena School Garden. We did a, uh, a barrel oven, which is a little different than a cob oven, but it uh, works fantastic. And Why don't you tell me how that works? Because it's, it's different than the normal cob oven. Sure. So uh, it's uh, you make a fire below, and then the heat goes up and around the the barrel, and uh, so there's a barrel, and then there's, there's a about a three inch gap in between the barrel and the adobe brick dome on the outside of that, and so the you the heat goes up and around the outside of the barrel. And then there's two racks on the inside of the barrel, so they, uh, you can just put the food right inside the barrel and make the fire below. And so you don't have to deal with any pushing coals back at all because uh, there's no fire or smoke actually in the fire chamber, right? It'll all just be, um, you know, underneath and around. And Is that so called a white oven Isn't it in, in uh, Mexico, I think, or Orno Blanco? Have you heard that term? The, the Orno Blanco, that's more of the, with a lime plaster. That's more of like adobe with a lime, lime um, plaster. So, and that, that's typically how the, the ovens are, are protected is with a lime wash uh, over them. And I do a lot of uh, lime. I do Ornos also. And, uh, and so, yeah, and th those work great. Um, so it's neat seeing when, when Latinos come here and they see my, my Orno, they get kind of nostalgic because it reminds them of their mothers and their grandfathers you know, having uh, Ornos in Mexico. And, and so it, it brings back, you know, this, this very familiar feeling to them. Do you, do you like the barrel oven better? Are there some advantages to that over the traditional Orno? Uh, yeah, for, for cooking for a lot of people, um, for long, sustained heat, 
Uh, I do prefer it actually. It's a lot. They're easier to use, and you can fit more into a barrel oven. You can fit uh, like two large casserole pans into a, a barrel oven, whereas a cob oven is kind of limited space, and they, they stay hot for a long time. They don't get as hot as a uh, as a cob oven would. A cob oven is great for pizzas. It's probably better for a pizza. Uh, for pizza parties because you just keep that fire in there it gets 800 degrees you get the two-minute pizza it's a great party trick it's it's pretty impressive but the barrel ovens I, I've been really impressed with how well they work for for community gardens I think the Michelle Terrena School Garden chose wisely to get a barrel oven uh, down there so yeah no they're 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 fantastic they uh, uh, there's a, a group called fire speaking Max and evil Eva Edelston they they make the uh, the barrel oven kind of the kit and then they send it out and then uh, I fabricated it kind of put it all together so and, and that, that was great because they they do potlucks there every Thursday night they're at the school garden and so it's been really nice for them to open up the possibility of doing pizzas uh, for their potlucks and very cool what attracted you to Cobb uh, in the beginning uh, well, I became Cobbsessed um, back in the 90s. I was converted uh, when uh, pretty much I discovered that you could build a, a whole Cobb house for close to nothing. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to cost anything other than some of the wood that you might buy for the roof, but even that you can get it recycled or, or mill it yourself. And, uh, and so I, ca- I came up with a list of uh, 50 reasons of why it's good to build with Cobb. And, uh, and the most importantly, actually it was the first and it was worth a second mention, so it has a 50th reason, is that it's, it's fun. It's just fun to do. When I, when I get the clay and the sand and mix it together, dancing on the earth, that, that's fun. Building with other people, creating a bench uh, or an oven, that's fun. Cooking in it's fun. Living in it's fun. The whole experience, going inside on a hot day and experiencing how much cooler it is, you know, the natural air conditioning. That that's fun to experience. You know, they, they, it's fun to look at. I mean, it's the whole thing. There's so many positive things about it, and it's it's cleansing. It actually absorbs any toxins, and it's alkalizing. So it's just it's good for the body. And uh, so yeah, so once I I uh, saw that you could actually build a house for yourself using earth from your property. Um, you know, being uh, the year of the rat, that makes me very resourceful, and so I, I, I like using what's available, right? It's readily available, and the, the whole concept of having to go to a store to buy something that you can actually just get yourself for free that's actually much better for you and non-toxic and better for the environment and, you know, just more aesthetically pleasing, um, you know, it, it just resonates on, on all levels. So I, I hope to be doing this for as long as I can, and I'm trying to share this with as many people as I can. And, uh, you know, Sonoma County here, is, it's, a, it's a great culture. Uh, people are very receptive to it. Um, but I was really excited about doing it down in L.A. also. I, I see a big need for it. And um, it's a big project that I'm working on locally is uh, doing low-income housing. Uh, I did a presentation last week to the Board of Supervisors. Um, the uh, Sonoma County um, a Community Development Commission asked me to, to make a presentation on tiny houses. And uh, the houses made out of pallets, put upright, filled with straw, covered in a cob mix, and then plastered and sealed and a nice roof over it. And they can be made you know, very attractive, very nice. And a big important element of this would be the people living them would actually help to build them themselves. And so that would you know, be a sweat equity um, system, and it would give them a, a, a sense of empowerment and a, a skills training, so you know, to learn how to build a house is a pretty valuable a skill to have, and uh, it would help build community you know, in that. And so I'm, I'm trying to introduce the whole concept of composting toilets. They, the, um, you know, the city of Petaluma and the county of Sonoma County, they're interested in composting toilets. They want to learn more about them. They, they don't have many examples. that they, they want to learn more about them. And so I'm, I'm, cr- I'm creating some examples of, of really nice ones that they can come and see to be inspired by. And Because that's one of the biggest obstacles to having somebody just build a tiny house is the, the whole septic um, system. You know, but if they're able to just build a composting toilet and use that to fertilize the garden, and it can be demonstrated that it's it's clean, it it doesn't stink, it, it's it just makes sense, then then hopefully that'll that'll catch on and make things a lot easier. Now we're in earthquake country. How are you going to deal with the building codes with the cob structure here in Sonoma County? 
Well, I, well, okay. Well, as you can see, I have this earthen dome here that I've been driving around in the back of my truck, and it does perfectly fine. But yeah, let's I, describe that in detail. We're actually standing because this is an audio. We've you've got a trailer here yeah, and a cob right. oven on it that you you say you take around to a lot of events. Yeah, I, I call this my the chariot of fire. Um, so this is a it's a earthen dome. Um, then uh, yeah, it's just made out of sand, clay, and straw, and it's just this earthen dome. And I've been driving this around. I take it on long road trips, down bumpy roads, and everything, and, and no no problems, never a crack. And so, but when I when I do um, well, a couple things. Okay, so a cob is actually much stronger than adobe. Uh, it's it's monolithic. All the straw that's in the cob helps to hold it all together. So if there's any movement, the whole structure would all move together. It wouldn't be individual bricks that would would cause tension and would would um, would would could collapse. And because there has been a lot of adobe structures that have fallen, so it is important to be realistic uh, about its limitations. And so usually when I do an adobe structure, and I love building with adobe, I, I'll the build the roof will be built on up, upright supports. So I'll do 4x4 four four supporting the roof, and then the adobe bricks will be in between those bricks. And if, to be extra cautious, I could put braces on either side of the upright post to support those bricks, right? You know, what I'm advocating more is the pallet house. I think a pallet house is a great way to build, and, and definitely that's very earthquake-proof. And Because you can build one so quick, uh, cob houses take a long time to build. But a pallet house, you can build it in a few days. You can put up the, the walls, and it's, it's super satisfying. Yeah, an earth bag, too, is great. I mean, like in, in Nepal, there was a, a whole orphanage, an earth bag dome orphanage with, like, 30 earth bag domes that sustained very, very minor, minor cracks during the earthquake where the, vill the villages, where everything else collapsed, but those were the only uh, standing structures left. So, so, and once you have a dome, a dome is the strongest structure on the planet, and you, a dome can't collapse, right? And so, so that's something I, I definitely advocate is is to, to build uh, domes, so you also don't need to be, use wood for the roof then too, and it's very well insulated on a hot day. Do you have any advice for people who want to either build an oven or a structure out of cob? What what should they think about? Well, yeah, I, I would say start start with an oven. I think ovens are great ways to start to get excited about cob, um, especially if you're living on some property where you plan on building uh, more, um, like some like a bigger structure. Start with an oven so that you can have something to feed, so you can have pizza parties uh, to feed your your workers, your helper volunteers, and uh, and as far as using the earth on your property, go go to your backyard. Dig a hole, get you know, see how that earth is, see how it feels. Maybe add some water to it, and just develop a relationship with that earth. And uh, if you're if you're question whether or not there's clay in it, just form it into a ball and let it sit in the sun for a day and check it out the next day. And most likely, it'll probably be a hard ball by then. And uh, and then you can you can put that jar, you can put the clay and water into a mason jar and shake it up. And so you can see how much sand is in that clay, right? Because the sand is heavier than the clay, and so it'll settle to the bottom. So you can see how how it separates. So you can see what kind of ratio of sand to clay is in the earth that you're working with. And you want the final ratio to be 70% sand, 30% clay, right? And so sometimes I'm able to find a ready mix where I don't have to add any sand at all. It's all ready to go. It's add water, a little straw, and voila, it's ready to go. So, uh, but if you're using adobe soil, you have to add a lot of sand to it. So, yeah, but there's workshops. Uh, you know, I have a lot of videos on my website. My website is livingearthstructures.com. Uh, the acronym is L-E-S, like less, less is more. So it's, uh, so I have a lot of videos. I have over 100 videos on my uh, YouTube channel, and, I, and I, I usually document most of my structures, so you can see how to build an oven, how to do a bench, how to do a hot tub, how to do a dome sauna, how to do a meditation dome, how to do a uh, pallet house, you know, a lot, a lot of different structures. Um, and, there, and there's uh, the Natural Building Network also, and there where they, they list uh, online, naturalbuilding.org, and where there's, uh, every state will have a different, uh, who's leading workshops, and it's kind of done by regions. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I'd say just start. Just start, start in your own backyard, get some earth, 
get get some friends over, do a project. I, um, there's a lot of these festivals now too. Um, you know, lightning in a bottle, symbiosis. A lot of these big festivals are now doing natural building workshops at the festival. Uh, you know, which I think is fantastic. I'd like to see festivals where, as the DJ's playing, you get a hundred people all stamping on the cob, doing a big cob stomp, and we could then uh, you know make if we had a hundred people stomping on cob for two hours, we could make at least two thousand adobe bricks. Let those dry in the sun. Two weeks later, have another festival where we actually build a temple, build a structure, build an actual house using those adobe bricks. And so people go into the festival can can learn this uh, the skill and actually leave a trace and you know something beautiful behind. And and every year add on to it and build bigger and bigger and bigger and build a whole village. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. Well, I want to thank you so much. Thank you. It would be a, a mudstrosity to build a, a mudstrosity, but I'd say we do it anyhow. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> we came back on the last day of the expo and met up with Sir Cabalot again. He was roasting squash and demoing a copper coil, cleverly embedded in the oven, that heats up water. In all my ovens, I actually haven't tried this out in a long time, so I, I forget if it actually works or not. Hi. Hey. So, here, could you do me a favor, Laura? Could you... Stand here with stand someone here. from LA. Laura has been drafted. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Laura. So if you stand right here, and if you can put this cup, just kind of hold that. Okay, just make sure that cup doesn't fall down. And I'm going to pour some cold water into this copper tube right here, that's embedded into the oven. Oops. Yeah, maybe you can stay away from the front of it. This is like a steaming tube. Is that what? Whoa! Like a steaming rocket. What does this do? So this heats up water. I, I, hot water comes out of the copper tube. Oh, that's cool. So you can make like tea and stuff. There's a, there's an in pipe and an out pipe. And so it's it's not. So the idea is you can pour cold water into the copper tube in the top of the oven, and then it comes out hot water like it is right now. So it comes out boiling hot water out of the the copper tube. So is the copper tube embedded in it's the cob, basically? The, cob, right? the copper tube is embedded. The, the walls of the, in the thermal mass layer is about four inches thick. And so it's embedded about two inches deep into the oven. So I'm able to get instant hot water out of the oven. How long is that copper tube? It's about 10 feet. It's about 10 feet oh, long. Okay. Yeah. So it snakes around inside the cob. And so this, I can actually do hot tubs this way too, right? So I've had a tub of water, and I put the pump in the water, and the water just gets pumped through the oven. It constantly circulates through, and then it heats up, you know, the water for, for a pizza or for a hot tub. Thank you, Mr. Cabalot. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, you'll have to come and, and check out the, uh, the squash. I also do a pizza called the squash squash. So you get a butternut squash, and you squash it, and then you put your olive oil on, your goat cheese, and your garlic, your tomato, your kale, your fresh arugula on top, and it's, it's amazing. So it's a gluten-free uh, you know, pizza. Wow, very cool. Thanks again. All right, sure thing. My pleasure. At a press function on Wednesday, the second day of the expo, a tall man with a white beard, who was dressed entirely in red, came up to me. Even though it's not yet Halloween, I couldn't resist doing an interview with the one and only Sustainable Santa. Okay, I'm finally rolling. Who am I here with? You are here with Sustainable Santa, a federally registered trademark. And you look like Sustainable Santa. We should, you should describe yourself. Well, I look like Santa, except I look like the typical world Santa. The Santas all over the world except for the United States are not fat. Only American Santas are obese and that is 100% due to two things. First, when Clement Moore wrote the Night Before Christmas poem in 1823, the rich Americans showed their wealth by being what they called corpulent, meaning obese. They also, by the way, had pasty white skin to show that they didn't have to work outside in the sun. That image, probably the jelly-bellied guy who smoked a pipe and blew smoke rings around his head like that probably would have died out. However, in 1931, Coca-Cola picked up as their Christmas advertisement this 300-pound behemoth who was swilling the pause that refreshes. Now, of course, we know that that's not the pause that refreshes. It's the pause that gives you type 2 diabetes, but that's a different issue. Uh, and Coca-Cola, by the way, Google it, you'll find out it's true. Coca-Cola takes pride in the fact that they invented the red suit with the white cuffs. That's Coca-Cola's colors. My group are all former mall Santas. All of us have become healthy. 
which does not necessarily mean skinny. At uh, 194 this morning, uh, I'm still about 10 pounds overweight, but I used to be over 300 and, uh, 280, uh, so it's, it's down quite a bit. I have some in the group that have lost 180 pounds, uh, and they feel marvelous. They're off their statins, they're off their medications, they feel great. We do two things. We, first of all, place uh, healthy, happy Santas in farmers markets. We started two years ago in San Diego County. We're now spreading it throughout the state of California. Next year we hope to go nationwide. And in the farmers market, the healthy, happy Santa can talk to the kids about healthy eating. We have fashioned three food rules which are triage, uh, stop the bleeding. Uh, these rules are designed to get the kids off of the junk food. What is your first name? My first name's Eric, last Eric. name Knudsen. What, your, your name again? Uh, Sustainable Santa. Oh, that's what you go by, okay. I go by. Uh, I, uh, hey, I even have a California driver's license that says that. Uh, uh, wait, wait, hold on a second. Your real name is Sustainable Santa? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's actually Dr. Richard Eckfield, but that's, uh, that's a different story. The, uh, uh, the, Eric, the three... Now, hold, hold on a second. Doctor, doctor, what? Uh, uh, theology. Oh, you're a theologian. Yeah. Although I have a master's in public administration, I, I'm, I came out of the city management trade oh, okay. and teaching city management or public administration at the college level. Anyway, okay, so you were saying? Yes. The three food rules, which we have cards, and now I'm very proud to say that the International Brotherhood of Real Bearded Santas, which is the largest Santa group in America, several thousand Santas, Real Bearded Santas, they are going to give these cards to their members to pass out all over the state. But it has these three food rules, which we have to give credit to Michael Poland for inspiring us to write them. The food rule number one, Eric, goes to the fact that American children eat out of boredom, sadness, something to do. There's hunger, yes, but, but by and large, they go into 7-Eleven, they buy a Slurpees and, a, and a Cheetos just to get there. So food rule number one, Eric, is aimed at that. It goes, Eric, if you're hungry, eat an apple. Oh, Eric, you say you don't want an apple. Well, you know what, Eric? If you're not hungry enough to eat an apple, you're probably not really hungry. Food rule number two, Eric, treat treats as treats. Now, there's nothing wrong with special occasion foods. And a cookie on Christmas Eve or a cake on your birthday, a cake on your birthday, your birthday is the most special day of the year, perfectly appropriate. But don't make that cookie, that cake, that cinnamon bun, even that pizza a daily or weekly affair. Treat special occasion treats as treats. And the last one, and we'll quit here, is the S rule. S. No sodas, no second helpings, no between meal snacks, no added sugar, no added salt, no uh, sweets, except, Eric, on days that begin with the letter S. You know what those are? What, be Saturday and Sunday? That's right. So we can keep Eric off the, off the junk food and the sodas Monday through Friday. By the time you have that soda on Saturday, it doesn't taste the same. And eventually you'll withdraw from that. In the farmer's market then, the other reason we're in farmer's market, is they can go out and they can find examples of whole foods. And we'll save the, how we do that for another time. So tell me a little more about your personal journey. You lost a lot of weight, and then, and you were presumably a Santa before you lost the weight. And tell me what happened after you lost all that weight. Why did you lose the weight, and, and, and what happened afterwards? Well, <laughs> well, I lost the weight because I was always out of breath when my very athletic wife wanted to go for a walk. Uh, if you want to go for a long bicycle ride, I was always huffing and puffing and pushing the bike up the hill. Uh, we like to hike in the high Sierras, and uh, I was always the last one in the line, etc. And so what I did is a very simple thing. I cut out all wheat. No bread, no crackers, all wheat went. Uh, my wife bought a Blendtex blender, and we have a Blendtex uh, veggie drink every morning uh, from her garden. No matter what, sometimes it's pretty, pretty ripe. It's kale, and it's uh, chard, and it's uh, collards, etc. And sometimes it has a little bit of uh, sweetness to it. Uh, in the tent. We put some pineapple in there, maybe a piece of banana, something of that nature. And 80-plus uh, pounds just literally fell off. I never counted a calorie. I never read a diet book, etc. I just began to eat a, I guess you'd say a, a, uh, a whole food, mostly plants, vegetarian with a little paleo added because we do eat poultry and we do eat fish. You know, there's a great proverb, and again, credit goes to Michael Pollan for this. There's a great proverb that comes from China that says, you know, the most important thing to eat is things that stand on one leg. And you know what stands on one leg, Eric? 
Isn't that a, a Jewish proverb? Uh, no, no, no. It's a vegetable. It stands on one leg. The carrot? Yeah, well, carrot or, or a piece of broccoli. It stands on one leg, right? The, uh, the, uh, the second best thing to eat is things that stand on no legs. What stands on no legs, Eric? That would be fish. Uh, you got it. And the next thing, pretty obvious, things that stand on two legs. And that is obviously... That's us. Can you eat us? Poultry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ducks, you know, geese, uh, uh, chicken, uh, etc. And the least desirable is things that stand on four legs. But even there, you got to start with the smaller ones. If you're going to go to the four-legged ones, start with the lambs and the goats before you get to the cows. Now, after you went on this diet, what happened to the Santa business? I didn't go on a diet. I went on a life-changing. Life? Oh, okay. No, that's fair. After you changed your life, what, what happened to the Santa business? Well, I was working in a mall. Uh, and uh, and I'm enjoying it, you know, actually. Uh, but I showed up uh, 80 pounds less, and they said, you know, you're under contract. You've got to wear a pillow. And they have this pillow. I mean, it's not like a pillow pillow. It's a fitted thing, very much like the uh, umpire wears behind home plate. It's a fitted pillow. And I said, well, I don't want to wear that. That's a bad example. Well, you're under contract. There was no interest. of the. F- These are people who are selling photographs. That's what they do. And, and, and that, that's fine. That's what their job is. But uh, it dawned on me, like, wow, what a horrible role model it is for the children. And I shopped around and asked around, and lo and behold, I found that enormous number of Santas wanted to shed that belly, but were thinking, if I do, I'll lose my career. Well, let me tell you, the mothers across America love the healthy Santa. It helps them keep the kids healthy. You know, if I can make one more point, I don't know how long we have here, but uh, if I can make one more point, uh, a lot of people say it's up to the parents to feed the kids and make sure they have a healthy diet. I I don't believe that. Uh, I believe the mothers have absolutely no chance uh, because the kids look at television and it's filled with eye candy, literally eye candy, as well as other things that encourage them to, uh, to eat unhealthy stuff, etc. They go to school and there's vending machines that are dispensing completely nutritionless uh, junk food. And of course, the school district gets 20% of the cost. So that's why they're there. And so the poor mother is up against this this wall of, of uh, this behemoth of advertising. Uh, and, and so they come to us and they say, you know, you real Santa's united to end childhood obesity. That's what the group is called. Uh, you are so good. I love you because you're helping me. I can tell my children, Santa says, no, you can't have that soda or Pepsi or Mountain Dew or even the health drinks. I mean, if you look at how much sugar is in the naked line, the naked mighty mango, 200% of the daily recommended allowance of sugar, and they pass it off as a health drink. The, uh, but the mothers need help, and we Santas are here to give it. And as I say, I'm so happy that the International Brotherhood of Real Bearded Santas has decided to, to adopt this. They didn't change a word. They adopted it whole, and they're, they're, they're paying. I'm not paying. They're paying for the cards. I put, I put a tre- tremendous amount of money the last two years into this, but they're spending serious dollars giving these to every one of their over 1,000 members across the country. We're on a roll. We're going to make America healthy. What's your website, actually? Uh, well, at the moment, I send people to the YouTube, which is Sustainable Santa, and you'll find a whole series of Sustainable Santa sagas. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting, of course, you, you spoke about the origin of, of the American Santa being with uh, Coca-Cola. And, of course, another thing about Christmas in this country is it's highly commercialized. Uh, do you have anything to say about uh, commercialization of Christmas? And are you, uh, is that something you're interested in? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I have here, unfortunately, you can't see it because this is radio. But uh, we, have a, uh, we make this available exclusively at farmer's markets. It's Santa's Make a Christmas Gift Idea Book, where you, the children can make gifts from the garden, from the forest, from the sea, and from the kitchen, supplies. It says, with instructions so easy, any child uh, can help their parents follow them. Uh, And it shows them how to make corn husk angels, how to turn limes into Christmas ornaments, how to turn pine cone scales, that's what those little things that come off of the pine cones are called, into Christmas ornaments, how to turn the little slab at the bottom of the tree trunk into uh, oyster shells, scallop shells, wooden spoons, and best of all, the kitchen spoon. I always say to the children, when mom's not around, go into the kitchen and then just bend it over and then you just paint it. And mom says, what, what? No, you, you go to the yard sale or you go to the thrift store and you can find all the spoons and you bend it over and it makes a beautiful, beautiful ornament. And grandma, when she gets one of these made by a children, uh, by your, their grandchild, she'll cherish it for life. 
the easiest one in here is these little slabs. Three-year-olds made those. And uh, they're just little Santa faces. If you make it, you cherish it. If you buy it, you yard sale it six months later. We're a, we're a consumption and throwaway society, unfortunately. Uh, but this is, this, is, this is stuff that's available. It's sustainable because it's literally byproducts of the forest or the seashore, etc. And, uh, yeah, go to the farmer's market. We want to make the farmer's market the place where you go for Christmas shopping, not the mall. Right on. Well, thank you, Sustainable Santa. Good to talk to you. Good talking to you, Eric. All right. Oh, Eric. Yes. Let me be the first to wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> An early, just before, you know, as the uh, decorations for Halloween are going up in all the stores. That's right. Of course, in a lot of the stores, Christmas stuff is already there. That's, that's right. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you, too. Merry Christmas to you. I dropped by the California Grange booth and met up with Grange member Patty Hill, Wally Dubois of Pilot Hill Grange, Sacramento, and Bob McFarlane, president of the California State Grange. Here, what was your name again? Patty. Patty Allen. Patty, and you are with the Grange? I am right now the secretary of Bennett Valley Grange. Okay, who else is with me here today? Wally Dubois, the uh, president of Pilot Hill Grange, Hearst Grange, uh, established in Sacramento. And I'm Bob McFarland, the president of the state organization. Um, so who wants to explain the Grange, what the Grange is to me? You are again? I'm Bob McFarland, the president of our state organization, and we are the California State Guild, formerly the California State Grange. And uh, the Grange is an organization that started in 1867, right after the Civil War. It's the oldest agricultural organization in the country. And here in California, the Grange has 10,000 members in 185 communities. Uh, so we're quite prominent, and we do a lot of work at the Capitol to uh, bring about uh, good legislation to help uh, rural communities and small farmers. And uh, we're growing, which is great. And it's a fraternal organization, but it's obviously co-ed. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, there's been women in the Grange since the beginning, and they have equal status. They can be president. They can be every officer. Um, there's some offices can be held only by women that can't be held by men. I've, I've been the president and the secretary. My husband took a stint as secretary. All right. Anyone want to say anything out now? The, the Grange is, do you want to say something about uh, your Grange? It's the first one. Is that right? Uh, Pilot Hill Grange was established as the first Grange in California in 1870. And charter members were James Marshall, who discovered gold in Coloma, and A.J. Bailey, who actually was the Trump of his time. He built hotels and stuff all over the place. He was kind of a uh, mogul back then. He's the one that got us got the charter started, built the first Grange building, and uh, was uh, uh, very active in that Grange uh, for, for that time period. Um, things fell apart on the gold rush in 1888 to 1890, so things kind of uh, fell apart, and it was reorganized in 1930. It's been going ever since. Uh, the very cool thing about the Grange um, back in 1880 they accepted women in as officers they accepted uh, them and able to vote before women had the right to vote in elections so it's always been very progressive uh, very into uh, helping farmers uh, part of the deal in the 1800s 1880s was uh, the railroad barons were charging farmers way too much. So these guys got in to help break the monopolies up. Were part of the um, the law to break these monopolies down. They also were very active in getting uh, rural mail delivery, which wasn't in existence, uh, and you know it's still a fight today because it's a money loser for the uh, uh, U.S. mail. But you know you don't want these guys uh, having by wagon train back then to go you know 20 miles to New York City for their mail. So recently, as part of the uh, social activism, uh, GMO labeling, uh, it, it was helped, uh, pushed by the uh, California State Grange. It um, kind of fell to the onslaught of $42 million of uh, um, big ag money. But the uh, industrial hemp resolution that this Grange, State Grange sponsored went through and got uh, voted in a couple years ago. 
the political side of the California Grange was controversial, right, nationally. So um, the, the the California Grange was uh, sort of separated from the National Grange. Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, my personal opinion is that the National Grange tends to be more conservative. And here's an example. On the National Grange today, you can go on their website and see them pushing a letter to go to your legislators to um, stop the EPA with carbon emissions um, um, uh, re uh, reduction at coal plants. Okay. Also, the state uh, National Grange has talked about, well, we're not ready to say anything about GMO because FDA hasn't ruled on it. I would call that very conservative. And the fact that we're more open-minded liberal here, I think there's a clash. And I think there's a, a big, um, ca uh, there's, a, there's definitely a wedge. But um, we're all, I mean, it's, I'm not saying climate change, sustainable, uh, uh, GMO. When you talk about GMO, we're saying, I'm saying, why can't you label it so I know what it is? And let me make my own decision. That's all. And, and, you know, you can make a big, uh, a, a lot of, there's a lot of different nuances there. And nobody's against making new organisms. We're just saying we want to know what they are. That's all. Now, recently, Monsanto has re um, introduced the concept of killing bugs by dis disrupting their genes. And I, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, interesting. We have... Um, um, 2,4-D being put into Roundup because there are Roundup-resistant plants, uh, but weeds, Roundup-resistant bugs. Where does it all end? So part of the Grange, and everybody in our Grange, uh, is looking at uh, we grow our own stuff. Some people grow uh, pigs and so forth. We want to swap it. And uh, one of our big deals is to come up to a meal, a potluck, where everybody brings something that they've grown. So you have everything on the plate is homegrown. And it's going to be, uh, it's, we're, we haven't got there yet, but that's part of one of our goals. Plus, the Grange is about that. It's about community, helping each other. Very interesting. And I, uh, someone asked me the other day, uh, how long have you been in the Grange? And I thought for a minute, I said, you know what? I've been in the Grange my whole life. I just haven't been in this A Grange because it's the spirit of the Grange, the spirit of helping, the spirit of knowing where everything in the world is interconnected to everything else. And you can't break those chains. You have to live within that. That's part of the Grange. I think it's a wonderful place. Um, uh, um, a lot of good people. And we do things for the community. We support the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, give them a free place to be, rent out the hall, help with uh, groups, uh, and have weddings there, and all kinds of stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, in the past uh, few decades, we've seen the decline of many fraternal organizations and other, you know, other groups of people. Um, do you think that um, perhaps it's a time that we'd see more fraternal organizations, or, or is it declining? Or where do you see this 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 going? Well, if you look at places like the Elks, they're going strong, and and what they do is they uh, there are a lot of, there are a lot of ex-military in there, and fortunately we continue to have a lot of ex-military um, in terms of um, uh, having to have them around for wars. It's kind of sad. but So they have a steady supply of people, uh, and they're doing quite well. They also have cracked the code, which is they have full bar, full services, and things that appeal to that, that group. The other groups, you're right, it's, it's, it's a tough. Um, the Pilot Hill Grange almost died two and a half years ago, and we kind of resurrected. But I think... It's a marketing problem to me, you know, and what we've done, we've gone from seven people to 60 in a year and a half, and we're marketing it, offering things to people, and there is a common interest out there that can be uh, a good source for people to get together and do things. I mean, the activism and, and also uh, what our kind of motto is, is uh, share, learn, grow, and thrive. And sharing everybody in that group. Every go to any Grange, the skill range of the people that are in the Grange. There's art. There's um, uh, um, uh, carpenters, uh, electronics guys. Um, there's uh, contractors. All kinds of people. 
so that's why the Granges can get maintained by the locals. But there's just so much talent there that can be used to help the community, used to help others. But it's kind of hard, like you said, and it's all about money. All the Granges, there's no subsidy. The Granges all live off of all volunteers, all contributions, donations, fundraisers, and so forth. Pancake breakfasts, all that good stuff. And uh, it's tough. I mean, it's a lot of work to do, and volunteers are volunteers. But I think um, once we get over this state and national non-Granger kind of behavior, then we can get back to reviving uh, and, and, and pushing harder and, and getting. I, I know there's a hunger out there for it. I hear it all the time when I talk to people, and they're very excited. But we have to. Uh, it's marketing. It's, to me, it's a pure marketing issue. Uh, I associate it with rural areas. Are there urban granges? And what are the what's the difference between an a urban grange and a rural grange? In the rural granges, they tend to be, I think, more self-sustaining, uh, raising your own food and so forth, and and um, they tend to be lower population, but tighter, you know. Uh, in the city, closest to the cities, like um, the Sevastopol Grange, uh, San Luis Obispo Grange, they're big near a big city, and they have access to uh, local farmers that are small farmers, and uh, there are a lot of them that have farmers markets, and they are able to leverage that. So again, it's like bigger population, more diversity, uh, more opportunity. So it's it's really everything's pretty much the same, but I I see the. The big city uh, granges have a lot more farmer activity, uh, and and some of these rural ones you just can't sustain uh, small mar- small farms that way. But there are there, and we need to reach out. And in the old days, we in in Pilot Hill there was a lot of activity with local farmers. That's kind of gone away because of the water problems and so forth in the area. But we have to figure out how to get them back, and that's part of the push as well. Do you see people socially outside of meetings? Have you made sort of business connections, that kind of thing, outside of, uh, of formal meetings? Absolutely. Um, we have, um, we're a part of the uh, Divide Chamber of Commerce. We go to their meetings. We have several uh, chamber members is, uh, um, that are also members of the Grange. And that has been an um, absolute magnificent welding of the business climate and, and I call the, the Granger climate. And we've been able to, uh, we, we see people, they say hi. We have bingo every twice a month. Uh, they see our caller, Joe White, who's been a Granger for 50 years at that Grange. And they see him, out, hey, there's the bingo man, you know. Yeah, so it's a pretty small community and we see each other. Everybody's very friendly and it's all about, we live together, we work together. Um, no politics, no religion, uh, open to everybody. And it's, it works out real well. If someone's interested in joining, what, what do they do? Uh, for for um, us, the best thing is to go to the pilothillgrange.org website, and there's applications and more information there. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank a number of people who helped me with this episode of the podcast. Dale Benson, Christy Wilhelmy, who was a guest on episode 19, and Dana Morgan. I recorded several other interviews that I'll release at a later date. I'm also going to record longer interviews with a number of speakers that I met at the Expo. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher, and you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Additional music by Roe. Thank you for listening. (laughs) ¶¶